Well, good morning, folks. How are you today? It is good to see you. Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to John chapter 10. And while you're turning, I just want to make uh, note of a uh, guest we have with us today. Um, uh, as you know, if you've been a part of our church for any amount of time, you know that uh, we pray for the leadership in our nation and our local communities. And uh, we don't endorse political candidates, but we welcome everyone uh, so that you can have access to talk to them. And we are so thrilled to be able to have one that is running for the 43rd district of the state Senate this, uh, this year in the election. And Miss Anna Tillman is right over here. If you would please stand. Welcome. We're so glad to have you. She's going to be out in the main lobby after service is over with. If you'd like to say hello to her, please do so. If you'd like to ask her any questions, go ahead. If you're going to get into a political debate, we'll get you a room, okay? But, <laughs> but please uh, stop by and say hello to her as well. Thank you so much for being here. Um, today, we're starting a brand new series called Sheepish. We're looking at the characteristics of what it means to follow God with all of our hearts. Now, I also recognize that um, what time it is, I have a lot of stuff and I'm in my mind condensing it right now to get you the best stuff, but I make no apologies for letting the Lord just move in however he wants to during his services, amen? So when I finish, I'll finish and I'll pray for us and dismiss us today, all right? In John chapter 10, Jesus says some very interesting words and the interesting, they're interesting because of this. Do you know that there are over 7,000 promises in the Bible? 7,000 promises in the Bible. Their promises are of comfort and confidence and hope and peace and strength and grace and wisdom. So the issue is not a lack of promises. It's a lack of accessing them. And one of the things that God does about showing us how to access the promises of God is he gives us a physical representation of a spiritual truth in this. And one of the physical representations that Jesus takes is he says in John chapter 10 in the Amplified Version, which puts explanations in there, it says, I am the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his own life for the sheep. Verse 14, he goes on and says, I'm the good shepherd and I know without any doubt those who are my own and my own know me and have a deep personal relationship with me. Now, in the time and culture in which we live right now, we don't really get this whole concept of shepherd and sheep, do we? I mean, can I just show of hands, how many of you know a shepherd? Not Jesus. How many of you know a shepherd? Okay, this is not a spiritual question, trick question. Yeah, no, I don't know anybody that knows a shepherd. We're not a Bedouin society. We're not a nomadic society. No one really knows that. So we don't get the implications of this. But first century Middle Eastern culture would understand completely what Jesus is talking about and would know that when he says he's a good shepherd, what shepherds provide for them is he, they provide provision, which means sheep don't lack anything when the shepherd is looking out for them. From their, any of their physical needs, from hunger to safety or anything like that, they provide all of that. The second thing they provide is they provide direction. Shepherds know the twists and the turns of all the paths they're going to take. They know which way is backwards and they know which way is forwards and they know where the danger is and they guide sheep safely to the place they're supposed to go. Sheep are never lost if they follow the shepherd. The third thing they provide is they provide protection. Sheep face many threats, but a shepherd shields them from predators and from their own self-destructive behavior sometimes. So the people that are listening to this, they get it. They understand all this. And when Jesus declared this, no doubt 
their minds, like some of your minds may have gone through, gone to one of the most famous passages in Scripture, which is Psalm 23, when this is what David says. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me me along the right paths for his namesake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Who doesn't want that? I've never met anybody that said, eh, I don't need any of that. Look at all those promises. And of all those promises that we have, shepherd the promises of God, why aren't so many people living them? Why aren't they living in the promise of God? Because to assume the promises of a shepherd, you have to assume the position of sheep. And nobody really wants to be sheep. I mean, growing up, really, when, when kids were going, I want to be this, I mean, lion, tiger, you know, authority, king of the jungle. Nobody said, I think I'll take a sheep. You know, I'll be that. Nobody wants that. Why? Because they're defenseless. They have no fangs. They have no claws. They have no venom. I mean, the animal kingdom, they are snacks. They, 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 they have nothing. They, they, they cannot do this. They are defenseless. They need someone to protect them. They are directionless. No one, I mean, you've heard of a homing pigeon. You've heard of a guide dog. You don't associate those terms with sheep, do you? They just wander off in any direction without a shepherd guiding them. Quite frankly, they are dumb. In 2015, the BBC had a report, a news report that said that in the country of Turkey, there were shepherds and they were looking after 1,500 sheep. And they guided them up the mountaintop to a grassy area for them to graze. And the shepherds sat down to eat lunch. And when they sat down to eat lunch, one of the sheep wandered off to the edge of the cliff and fell off the edge of the cliff. 1,499 of them followed that sheep off the cliff. 450 of them died that day. The others didn't die because they landed on the dead sheep. I know, I know, it's so sad. Since we're in the South, you know, when somebody's that dumb, you know, we kind of just got to get, oh, bless their heart. You know what I mean? That's kind of how we handle that. $100,000 is the cost that it costs the people who own the sheep in that one thing. They just followed one sheep. They are also defiant. Sheep can be stubborn animals. It's not uncommon to them to follow their urges instead of following the commands of a shepherd. It is no wonder that the Bible says, and we like sheep have all gone astray. We've not followed the leading of the Lord. A couple of years ago, there was a news report, and it was about a social media personality who claimed to be a voice of the church. So he went to different conventions, he went to different churches, he went to political rallies, 
and he made all of these comments and he was being interviewed. And on the interview, they asked him about the role of Christians in society. And he said something to the effect of, the problem with Christians today is they act like a bunch of weak sheep. We don't need sheep. What we need is to take control and fight back. Now, regardless of what you think on politics, isn't it odd for someone who says they are a voice of the church to say that we should be not be something that Christ compares us to more than anything else? Now, I'm not telling you to be weak. I'm not telling you to lay on the side and not have any. That's not the purpose of this. But to denigrate what Christ says we ought to emulate is a problem. And you know what the biggest problem is? Pride. Can I just... His followers say that he just is bold and says what everything, everybody's thinking. Can I just tell you, we need a new definition of what the word bold is in today's society for a Christ follower. Do you know what bold is? Bold is not being brash. Brash is not bold. That's just rude. Loud is not bold. It's just loud. You know what bold is? Seeking the person of Jesus Christ contained in this scripture, the one who's available to us, living the whole counsel of the word of God, not just cherry picking the things that I like and picking verses in order to make me feel better about my behavior and calling everybody else to follow me. It's seeking the power and the authority of Christ, but the love and the grace of Christ and seeing everyone as a potential to know the love of Christ and see eternity spent with him. That's the whole counsel of the word of God. And we need bold Christians today, not someone who says they're being bold, but people who will boldly stand up and live the complete word of God. You know, the funny thing about pride is pride will convince you that you don't struggle with pride. And there's all sorts of pride. And we love to figure out what pride we don't have, right? So we can be proud. Well, I don't have that. See, I'm good. But there's all sorts of pride. There's social pride, keeping up with the Joneses. There's financial pride, being impressed with wealth. There's political pride, being sure of being, uh, you know, that you want to be politically correct or you want to be politically incorrect, fill in the blank. There's the pride of a pedigree, importance of my background. There's educational pride. That's the importance of degrees, being proud of that. Look, and don't send me emails. I'm not against education. Okay, I pursued education. But let me, listen to me. You can have more degrees than a thermometer and still make dumb decisions, okay? So I don't need your comments there. Listen, there's the, there's the pride of appearance. Worried so much about what I look. There's national pride, being overly patriotic. Once again, I don't need your emails. What I mean is this. I love my country. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. But there is one God, and his name is Jesus. Everything else is beneath him. There's racial pride, Having, believing there's a superior color of skin. There's spiritual pride, self-righteousness. Pride is so common that it's rarely considered in our lives, but it should be because it carries such a great cost because pride will, will separate you from the shepherd. And when you become separate from the shepherd is when you're in danger of the enemy. As a matter of fact, the antidote to pride, the key to getting access to 7,000 plus promises in Scripture, 
is humility. Now, this is the funny thing about humility. You're going to have it one way or the other. You will either humble yourself before the Lord or the Lord will humble you at some certain time. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's going to happen. It's just a question of when it happens. So if that's the key, I want to spend just a few moments just talking to you about how to know when pride is gaining ground in your life and how to know when you've got to renew this humble heart. Because humility, if you're not careful, will tend to fade and pride will try to force its way back into your life, even when you've gotten things together. So how do I know when pride is becoming a problem? I know pride is becoming a problem when, number one, I stop worshiping. The word worship means to attribute value or worth or credit to something. So whether we're singing or not or doing anything, I'm worshiping because I can ascribe credit to the Lord for all that he has done. Pride is the opposite. Pride wants us to think that we deserve the credit for the things in our lives. And whether you realize it or not, there is a fight every single day on who is going to get the glory in your life. Psalm 22 verse 3 says, yet you, O Lord, are holy. You are, who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. Spiritually speaking, when we worship, it creates a throne for God to sit on in our lives. It's a place for him to have the authority in our lives. That's why when we join our praises and our voices together and ascribe glory due to his name, you can literally feel the room shift. It's because we've invited him to take his place, rightful place among us and be God and Lord of all in those moments. You know what pride wants? Pride wants God's seat. It's what Satan wanted. It's what pride wants. Wants to believe, wants us to believe that life is about us. That's why it's so hard for some people to come into worship. And I'm not here to condemn you. I'm just here to say, if you've ever experienced any of these things, you probably have been dealing with a little bit of this issue. And all of us do this at one time or another, okay? But if you've ever come into a worship service and you go, well, I don't feel like singing. Well, I don't feel like clapping. I don't feel like raising my hands. I don't even like this song. Listen to me. At that point, you begin to make worship about you. And when you make worship about you, what you communicate to God is that worship is not for him, it's for us then. It's never about us. It never revolves around us. As a matter of fact, um, in um, uh, years and years ago, there was a man named Nicholas Copernicus. How many have ever heard of Copernicus before? He was a physician, studied mathematics, studied politics, economics, and even uh, some astronomy. And at that time, they believed that everything, the solar system, everything revolved around the earth. The earth was the center of the solar system of the universe. So everything revolved around it. And so he started having problems with it because the reason they believed it was there was a regular order of when they could see the patterns of things. But then every once in a while, that pattern would be off. And so the Greeks believed that the gods were warring against each other during that time. Nicholas believed in one God, and he said, that can't be the answer. And so he began to restructure everything and think through, and he began to put the sun at the center of the universe and start to do mathematical equations and even convince the publisher reluctantly to publish his results. Unfortunately, he had a stroke, fell into a coma, and died before it was published. And when it was published... No one, he couldn't, didn't have a chance to believe it. And everyone considered him an absolute failure at that point. 
until his students took his work and began to look at his work and complete his work. And literally within just a few years, almost overnight, historically speaking, people began to accept that the earth was indeed not the center of the universe, but the sun was the center of the universe. Historians call it the Copernican Revolution, the moment when people realized that everything didn't revolve around them. You see where I'm going? (laughs) Pride will tell you that everything revolves around you and your wants and your wishes and your needs. That's what pride does. But when you worship, you make a shift from you to the Lord and you realize that you aren't the center of the universe, but the Lord is. It's Jesus that's the center of it all. It's Jesus that splits human history in two. It's Jesus that the angels rotate round and round and round singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It is Jesus who gives light and light. It's Jesus who creates and sustains. It's Jesus who rules and reigns in our lives. And when I worship, pride is evicted from my life and Jesus is enthroned on my life and given his rightful place that my life begins to revolve around who he is, and what he's called me to be. That's what worship does in your life. That's why it's so important, and that's why it's so important that you put worship at the forefront of your life so that you give God the rightful place he deserves in your life. And the benefits are so incredible. You see, it turns out the earth wouldn't be good at all for everything to revolve around. It doesn't have the size or the weight, or the gravity necessary for things to stay in order. Guess what? You don't have the might, or the power, or the intellect, or the gravitas, or whatever else you think you need for things to revolve around you. But God has the might and authority that is necessary, that you can simply orbit around the things that he's already created and fulfill the destiny he's called you for. I know pride's becoming a problem when I stop worshiping and make things about myself. The second thing I do is I know pride is a problem when I start treating others poorly. When I start treating others poorly. Here's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1. Let love be your highest goal. Do you know that one of God's most reliable measurements of spiritual health is how we treat other people? Think about your last conflict, wherever it was. Let me just give you an example of how it probably went. They did something you didn't like, right? You started to think about it or meditate on what they did. Then you develop an attitude, and out of that attitude, you said something, right? And then they responded back and said something out of that, and finally, there was retaliation, and in some form or another, maybe you gossip about them, maybe you slammed the door, maybe you did something and separated for a little while. All of that takes place, Right? And you think the process began with something they did. There's actually a step before that. And that step is the disposition of pride. Because you thought your schedule, your needs, your attention was before theirs. James chapter 4 verse 1 says, Do you know where your fights and arguments come from? They come from the selfish desires that war within you. You want things, but you don't have them. So you're ready to kill and are jealous of other people, but you still cannot get what you want, so you argue and fight. Now, I can be hurt by you. 
You can be hurt by me. But I cannot be offended unless I think that I'm more important than the way you treated me. I can be hurt, but I cannot be offended. So it's like this. Who do you think you are? How dare you treat me like that, right? That's the position that you enter into all of it with. So the key to overcoming pride is to esteem everyone. And I know you're probably here going, but everyone doesn't deserve esteeming. But everyone has been fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God with the potential of receiving Christ Jesus as their Lord, just as you have. So you approach it. Let me give you a couple of things. You can approach those conversations with, what can I compliment? How can I encourage? How can I serve? Do you know it's impossible for pride to creep in when you approach it that way? Let me put it to you this way. The more conscious I am about blessing you, the less pride can influence me. The more conscious I am about blessing you, the less pride can influence me. And James goes on in chapter six, in verse 6 and says that there are these spiritual implications. Here's what he says. He gives us more grace. That's why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Favoring you causes God to favor me. Abusing you causes God to oppose me. Let me put it to you this way. If you attack sheep, don't be surprised if God doesn't treat you like a wolf for a while. I know pride's becoming a problem. When I start treating other people poorly, when I stop worshiping. Thirdly, is when I try to earn my salvation continually. I'm going to give you what a friend of mine described as the 10 most disbelieved letters in the Bible. It comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Here they are, underlined. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Say that. Three words with me. Not by works. Those are the hardest 10 letters for underbelievers to believe, and they're the hardest 10 letters for believers to continue to believe. We want to continue to try to earn God's favor. Now, most people, if you're a Christian, you would probably mark on a theology test. You'd say, how were you saved? I was saved by, by grace through faith. But you live it differently. And you live it differently. So here's the question. Why do we find it necessary to try to barter with God? If Scripture says that because of Jesus, I can boldly approach the throne of grace, making my prayers and petitions known to God, why do we barter with God and say, God, if you'll do this, then I'll do this? When he says, I can come to him at any time. You're a child of the king. Or... You believe when something happen, bad happens to you, it's because you did something bad. Or when something good happens to you, that you did something good. Once again, you think it's about you. Why is it that we continually come back to those circumstances? Pride. Especially in Western culture, and especially in the United States, we put a value on being self-made self-reliant, right? But self-made, self-reliant, self-centered 
is completely foreign to the gospel. The gospel is not, here's what I brought to Jesus. The gospel is, I brought nothing to him and he gave me everything. So why don't we live that way? Have you ever, have you ever been blessed by someone who said, I'm gonna take you to my favorite restaurant, okay? And I'm gonna treat you to a meal. Have you ever done, and then when you get to the restaurant, you've never been there before and you go, okay, well, we'll go get it, we'll love that. And um, before it starts, you go, now, look, you don't have to treat me. We, we can split this down the middle. Let me pay for mine. You pay for yours, everything. And then you open the menu and you go, oh, that's a little out of my price range. And so you're just dumbfounded. And so you're like, oh, my goodness. And so, you, you know, then you're like, I don't know what to order. I'm going to wait for them because you don't want to order too much, right? You don't want to order something too expensive. They're going to order something less expensive. You do all of these things. And even at the end of it, you still do this. You still say, oh, let me pay for mine, praying to God that they still pay for yours, right? <laughs> so you, let me pay for mine. Let me do this. And they go, no, 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 it's my treat, my blessing. I want to do this. And then you just say, okay. And listen, I'm not here to condemn you. I've done it before, but listen. But then you say something like, at least let me get the tip. <laughs> like there's this ginormous bill and you're going to throw a few bucks at it to walk away feeling like, well, at least I contributed something, right? That's how we approach God. He's done so much for us that we cannot do, paid it all. And sometimes we go, well, let me throw a few spiritual bucks at it so I can feel better about myself. Stop trying to continually earn the favor of God when the favor of God has been poured out on you because of what Jesus Christ has done in you. When it comes to our salvation... You can't earn it, you can't contribute, you can't add to it. You can either accept it or reject it. That's the only two choices. In 1829, there was a man named George Wilson and he robbed a United States post office and killed a man. He was arrested, he was tried and found guilty and he was sentenced to death by hanging. And the sheriff who was to carry out the hanging would set the date on when it was to take place. But a few of his friends got together and they knew the president of the United States, Andrew Jackson. And so they went to see President Jackson and they made an appeal on behalf of him and President Jackson gave him a full pardon. Now, if you don't know what a full pardon means, it's the essence of being not guilty. Doesn't matter that you were found guilty, you are freed. This is not on your record. There's no penalty against you. It cannot be brought up again. They took it to the sheriff. The sheriff came to him and says, good news. The president of the United States has given you a full pardon. You're free to go. And George Wilson said, I refuse to take a pardon from that man. And the sheriff said, I, you're, you're going to turn down a pardon? He said, I refuse to take a pardon. The sheriff actually didn't know what to do. He said, there is no way I'm hanging that guy with a pardon on my desk. So he notified President Jackson. President Jackson didn't know what to do. We'd never been faced with that before in our nation. And so President Jackson asked the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court made a decision on that. And the decision was issued by Chief Justice John Marshall. And it said essentially this. This is the phrase I want you to hear. A pardon rejected 
It's no pardon at all. A pardon rejected is no pardon at all. So George Wilson was hanged with his pardon sitting on the sheriff's desk. My friend, I don't know where you are with the Lord, but if you came here this morning and things weren't right with him, don't you dare leave out of this place with a pardon sitting on the desk. When grace has been afforded to you, and the only thing you need to do is take the disposition of a sheep and say, I surrender, I yield, I will follow you, and I will allow you to guide me the rest of my life. That's it. And when you do that, you will find joy and freedom like you've never experienced before. To those of you in the room that are believers, that have the tendency to try to earn a little something, can I just tell you something this week? When you make a mistake, or next week when you make a mistake, don't think in your mind, how can I make up for this mistake that I did to the Lord? Take it back to the cross that was sufficient. This week, when you feel like you've got to barter with God to do something, to get something, remember, all that you need was provided in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You simply need to trust that God will do what he said he will do. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes this morning? If you're in this room and you know things aren't right between you and the Lord, you need to surrender to his lordship today. And you can do that with the sincerity of your heart. You can pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I recognize you are the good shepherd, that you are the Lord and leader of all. And I recognize the Bible tells me that one day my knee's gonna bow. And so today I choose to bow in humility to you and surrender my life to you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And I pray that as you lead my life, that I will be faithful in all things, faithful to your word and to your spirit as you guide me. And I will never be the same. I'm gonna ask the, everyone in the room to just say this prayer profession. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. One more time. Jesus, I give you my life. Now, your head's bowed and your eyes still closed. If that's you, you know when you came in here today, things aren't right between you and the Lord. But you want to make a decision to follow him for the first time or the first time in a long time. I'm not here to embarrass you. I'm not here to call you out. I want to pray for you this week. If that's you, would you just raise your hand really high for me so I can see you? God bless you. Keep them up just a moment, please. God bless you. God bless you. Amen. Amen. Not alone. Not alone. All right, you can put them down. Father, I thank you for lives that have been surrendered for the cause of Christ. And I pray in the name of Jesus that the weight of any sin that they brought in this place would be lifted off of them and the joy of the Lord would just saturate their heart and their soul and their mind. I ask for those that are in the room that are believers, Lord, that are going to be tempted this week to try to add to their salvation, Lord, to rest in the promises of God that the good shepherd, if we will follow you, that you will provide for us, that you will guide us, and that you will protect us. And Lord, I don't, we don't want to be like those that say that we like sheep have gone astray. Lord, help us to follow faithfully in where you lead us. And trusting that where you lead us, Lord, will bring us to our ultimate destiny in this life and in life eternal. 
And God, we thank you and praise you for all that you are doing and all that you have done. And it's in the precious name of Jesus Christ we ask these things. Amen and amen. Come on, can you give the Lord praise in this place right now? Amen. Why don't you celebrate with me? Five people gave their hearts to Jesus today. That's the best decision they could ever make. Amen. If you made that decision today or in the last few weeks, um, part of some of our grow team are going to be down front here. We'd love to talk with you. If you want to find out some more information about Mount Perrin North, uh, our grow team members can do that. Just give us two minutes of your time, and we'll either help you with your first steps or your next steps and get it plugged in here at the church. This is Outreach October, and uh, all month long we're focusing on the outreach opportunities that God gives us through our ministry partners. And today we're highlighting one of our partners in the atrium. Out these double doors, uh, these center doors here in the atrium, is one of our partners, the Table on Delta. And um, what they are, they're a mission to end sexual exploitation starting right here in Marietta on Delk Road. And what they do is they provide a safe place for women and children who are currently or at risk of being sexually exploited to have a meal and then get connected with organizations that can help get them out of that lifestyle. It's such a beautiful organization, and uh, their goal is to bring transformation one life at a time. You can find out more um, uh, on your way out and uh, stop by their table. They'd love to talk to you about those things. Or in either of the lobbies, there are brochures out there um, that you can find out about all of our partners. Uh, and uh, I wanna say thank you from the bottom of my heart that God has opened up all these doors with these partners through the community for us to reach hundreds of thousands of people because of these partnerships, and it is because of your faithful giving. I love the fact that we don't have to get up here and beg and borrow. We just tell you that the Lord is true about his faithfulness when you give, and you do that, and you're affecting hundreds of thousands of lives all across our community in the greater Atlanta area. And I just thank you so much that I have the privilege of being associated with a group of people that are faithful to that. And I know you would never give yourself a hand, so why don't you give your neighbor a hand for their faithfulness right now? Can you do that? And celebrate what God's doing in our community. If you would please stand with me. The Bible contains a blessing. It is a priestly pastoral blessing in Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26. And that's what I want to speak to you as we do every Sunday over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace in Jesus' name. Let's give our response from Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. God bless you, folks. Love you. Have a great week.